Today, we come to a conclusion of our teaching series in the Gospel of Mark that we've been calling Discovering Jesus. And here we've been in the middle section of Mark's Gospel. Believe it or not, Discovering Jesus began back in September of last year. And it all began there with the disciples' question of Jesus calming the storm. Who then is this? Who is Jesus? And then through these eyewitness accounts of Mark's gospel, we've been uh, discovering the answer to this question. We found Jesus healing people. We found him feeding the hungry, challenging corrupt leaders, both within the political realm and within the religious, reconciling nations of of, uh, ethnic outsiders and insiders of his day. All this built up to Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed Messiah. He is the anointed, awaited king. Not only did Peter see this, we saw, but but God himself comes down, the Father, and speaks this word of confirmation that Jesus is not only the awaited Christ, but also the beloved son of God. Incredible moments of discovering the power of Jesus and who he is in his identity. The surprise of what we found over the past few months has been Jesus's repeated prediction of his inauguration, how he would become king, that it would be through him being arrested and crucified, him dying, being buried, and ultimately rising again. See, this strange inauguration would be the means of Jesus not only saving his people, but shaping what his people into what they are like. As he puts it, a people who deny themselves, who take up their cross and follow me. As we've come to the beginning of this year, the first Sunday, we looked at Jesus and his teaching on money, what it means to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me as it pertains to material wealth. Last week, we looked at the issue of power. What does it mean for Jesus's people to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow him when it comes to political power? And this week, we're going to be seeing Jesus speaking to the issue of marriage. Now, in confronting these first two, it's readily apparent to us Jesus' vision for them and the destruction of the problems of wealth and inequality in the world, the numbing effect of wealth and riches on people. It makes sense that Jesus would speak to that. Or last week, we've seen the problems, the chaos and violence that are bred as people seize power in a way opposite to Jesus's. But the question that comes to us today is why would Jesus include his teaching on marriage in the midst of these two? There's a lot of questions Maybe a little bit more of a longer sermon today. I'm going to work so that it's not. So why don't we do this? Let's pray. We're going to read Mark 10 verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to get into Jesus' teaching today on marriage as we close out discovering Jesus and finding his way, his call for us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, the one who denied himself and took up his cross so that he might save us. As always, we've got notes there on the uh, comment link. I'd recommend those as we're going to be jumping around a couple little places today. Not too much, but enough that you may want to have those passages in front of you along with the slides that April will be putting up. But let's pray and then we'll get into Mark chapter 10. And so Father, we stand before you as a people who desire to discover Jesus. It seems as though so much of human history has been divided over not only the conversations and questions of who Jesus is, but what it means to legitimately follow him. And so our prayer, our ask before you now is that in reflecting on Mark chapter 10, you might speak to us for us to discover what your vision is, not only for marriage and divorce, but for singleness and for our sexuality and our gender. There's so much here for us today. Some of the big questions of our moment. So Father, my prayer is that you would bring truth and compassion of grace and peace in my own voice, that I would speak in light with what your word says after wrestling with this. And together we may now wrestle with the words of Jesus and what he's calling us to. 
In your name we pray. Amen. And so Mark chapter 10, beginning there in verse 1. And he, being Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And as was his custom, Jesus taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then later in the house, the disciples again asked Jesus about this matter of divorce. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so here we are in Mark chapter 10. Back here at the beginning of verse one in chapter 10, we find Jesus, the story opens with him on his little teaching tour, making his way towards Jerusalem. And on the way, the religious leaders pull Jesus aside with a question. And that question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This isn't a question that's common to us today. But what we find is that they're not simply just asking a question about marriage and and legality, but rather in order to test him, it says. The Pharisees have a ulterior motive behind their question. What they're trying to do is trying to trap Jesus, to test him, trap him in what was the big debate of Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, there's this huge debate that we get linked to there in verses three through four, a contentious debate specifically around what Moses meant concerning divorce what was lawful, what was in the 613 laws of Israel given to them through Moses by God on Mount Sinai. They kind of bound them up as a community making their way out of slavery in Egypt. What is God's take on divorce? And that was the big debate of his day. Because what's interesting is that out of those 613 laws that Israel was given there at Sinai, only two, only two, surprisingly, give any guidance about divorce. And so why don't we look at this? Let's go back together. Let's look at these two reasons briefly. Get an idea of what the text is calling out of this issue of divorce, and then we'll come back to Jesus. A little bit of uh, background, understanding the conversation that Jesus is having with these Pharisees. So the first law, allowing divorce in the law, was in Exodus 21, verses 10 through 11. You'll see on the slide and then as well in the notes there, uh, where the law says, if a man marries a second wife, He must not deprive his first wife of food, clothing, or sex. If he doesn't provide these three things for her, she is free to go without pay back without the uh, bride price. Now, here's what's interesting. It's first and foremost, wait a minute. If a man takes his second wife, so is this condoning like polygamy and me having a bunch of wives? The thing to remember as we're reading through the laws of Israel is that we're not dealing with modern law. We're not dealing with God's eternal commands handed down, but rather... And we went through this in the story of justice, specifically the family of justice sermon. Rather in these laws, what we're finding is God's contextual application of his divine ideal. And so what's the context of Israel at the time of receiving this? They've been in centuries of slavery in Egypt, which we know historically is absolutely a patriarchal culture and one where the practice of polygamy was commonplace. And so this law, what we just read here, 
comes as this act of transitional justice of God directing his people toward his divine ideal of righteousness and justice. So consider in their day, they're coming out of two, you know, uh, 300 years or so of slavery within Egypt with patriarchy and polygamy totally normalized. In this sort of culture, who is on the short end of the stick? Who suffers the most injustice? Who in the, in, in the makeup is seen as property within the world? Wim, the women are. And so in light of that context and culture, that makes sense to it. Polygamy is commonplace. Patriarchy and that, 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 that top down, that kind of thing, this is all commonplace. When we read Exodus 21, 10 through 11, in light of that, we see that this command is actually one motivated by justice, one motivated by women's rights, which holds back the fallout of polygamy and patriarchy because what it holds back is it says that a husband cannot neglect or abuse his wife. On the, on, if a husband is neglecting or abusing his wife, withholding from her what is due based within the marriage, she's free to go. Doesn't have to pay anything. There's no her being stuck with a bride price that she can't get out of. And she or her, going back to her dad for some kind of appeal to get money and her being treated as property. She's, if, if the husband doesn't live up to his end of the deal, she's free to go. And so what we find within this command is it's actually protecting women's dignity in life, that they must not be trapped with a neglectful or an abusive marriage with a husband. And Exodus 21, believe it or not, is actually subverting polygamy. Not by immediately just saying, thou shalt not have multiple wives, because in a context where Israel and all of the people do have lots of wives, what that would have led to is hundreds of thousands of women and children being homeless, without food, without protection, without, without they, they would have not had anything. And so Jesus, God speaking in the law through Moses is finding a way to meet Israel where they're at and move in the direction of his wisdom and justice while still caring for people who are bound up in all sorts of messes. Jesus, or God, God is so gracious and patient as to work with Israel and he cares so much about the most vulnerable that he will allow them to stay within what is not his divine ideal so that at least they're being cared for as he moves in that direction. And so this subverts polygamy, not by immediately ending it, but by showing the wisdom of monogamy, one man and one woman, when marriage is a promise to provide for one another. Not ownership, but I promise, I'm going to provide. I'm not just taking on wives as ownership, but I'm, I'm ensuring that I'm pr providing for you. I'm giving you what you need and the wife likewise. And so the law actually subverts polygamy by going, if this is the promise you're making to one another, then maybe God had some wisdom in one man and one woman. So this first law that allows divorce, we find actually is one of great justice that it's bringing for women in the midst of a polygamous culture is God's moving his stuff forward. But what's worth pointing out here in the divorce uh, allowance is who ended this marriage in Exodus 21 in this law. Now the wife is free to go. She is the one that's separating and leaving. But what we find within the law is the husband is the one who actually broke the, the marriage covenant through his neglect or abuse. So the wife leaving is not necessarily the divorce or the separation or the ending of the marriage, but rather a recognition of what the husband has already done through his neglect. Do you see this? That this law is coming forward in this way. I don't know why I'm asking if you see this. I'm just asking if April sees this. So maybe April does, maybe you do. So we find within that first law of divorce, this is the, the background of what's going on. But what's interesting in all my study, that Exodus 21 had no bearings on the conversation of divorce in Jesus's day. All the, not only in, in legal proceedings that we can find through um, archeology, span but even in, in like rabbinic commentaries. Nobody touched Exodus 21. Everybody was focused on the other one, Deuteronomy 24. Let's read this giant run on sentence, both in English and in Hebrew. It says this in Deuteronomy 24. 
If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds a matter of indecency about her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, so here is that, you remember the Pharisees saying, Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce. We're ta they're talking about Deuteronomy 24. And he gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if she leaves his house, becomes the wife of another man. And if the second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from her house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry again. Okay, what in the world is going on here? So again, big, long sentence. This is a law about remarriage, basically saying in the assumption that a divorce has happened, a husband can't remarry a wife he's divorced after her having been remarried to another. But that's not the main point of the conversation in Jesus' day, at least. That's not the debate. The main debate is around these words here that in the notes are read, but the, the language of if uh, his wife becomes displeasing to him, if he finds a matter of indecency, and then again, if the second husband dislikes, it's, you know, fine, it's the same language of the, the displeasing word. So what's interesting is these words appear only here in all of Hebrew literature. And so when you don't have any other words to compare it to within the Hebrew text, anywhere else to get an idea of it, what do you do? You debate, you know, endless, you know, Bible debates are what happened. And so this right here, welcome to the big debate of Jesus's day. Welcome to what the Pharisees are coming to Jesus is basically what's your take on Deuteronomy 24 on what is displeasing to a husband? What is the matter of indecency? And so they're asking for Jesus to side with one of the two main parties of Jesus's day. The first was the debate was with rabbi or teacher Shammai. Now teacher Shammai held looking at Deuteronomy 24, that indecency or finding a matter of indecency or something displeasing was pure. It was about sexual infidelity. It was about adultery. And in his view, in this case, in the case of sexual uh, infidelity of adultery, that divorce was required. This was called the strict view. The displeasing matter of indecency, he, it's basically, you know, he, he catches his wife, you know, in bed with another man or, or, or he, you know, the, the, the rumor comes around or he finds out that if he finds this, then he's saying, okay, then there's a permission there for an allowance of divorce. But in this case, Rabbi Shammai said not only an allowance, but almost a, a legislated restriction, like a, a requirement that the man would separate from the wife. The second, which is the far more prominent in Jesus's day, was Rabbi Hillel. You might remember him as the inventor of the sandwich from back in the fall. Now, Rabbi Hillel held to not the strict view, but what was called the open view or the any and every reason view. And what this did is it focused on the idea, the language of displeasing and took displeasing to mean anything the husband doesn't find pleasing as grounds for divorce. So this could be everything from, yes, infidelity, but even more, the, a wife uh, in infertility to uh, incompatibility, even accounts of uh, the wife burning dinner or talking to a male stranger on the street. Rabbi Akiva, part of Rabbi Hillel's camp, he said that he permitted divorce for a wife if she became, um, if, for a husband to divorce his wife, if he found his wife displeasing to her eyes, which was, and then the commentary goes on to say, basically, if he found another woman who was single and you know, ready to mingle, that he could divorce his wife and go marry her. I mean, come on, hashtag toxic masculinity right here, right? This is not a new thing. This goes all the way back. So this is the big debate of Jesus's day. This is Deuteronomy 24 is the question that the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus about. Are you with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel? Where are you? Mark assumes we know this background, one by the, the certificate of divorce language there, but also because this is just historical. Everybody knows this was the big debate. It continued long after Jesus as an argument within Judaism up into uh, 8070 even. 
And so Mark assumes the background, but Matthew in his gospel, where he's basically retelling the same story, he's actually really nice because he assumes we don't know this whole debate. So he actually includes the Pharisees' questions. He says, they ask, not just, you know, can a man, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, but for any reason. So here we go, right here. They're clearly asking, are you with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel? Let's take a break here, take a moment, because Rabbi Hillel's was the dominant view in the time of Jesus. And so just stop and think about what this means for a moment. To live in a sort of culture where only men can initiate divorce and they can do so for any and every cause. And women, on the other hand, cannot. What does this reveal? What type of culture does this breed? But even more, what does this reveal about the understood purpose of marriage? Because your grounds for divorce will always come back to what you believe the meaning of marriage is in the first place. And so if the basis of divorce is on what the husband finds displeasing, then what it reveals is the purpose of marriage was understood to be the pleasure of the man. And so we have a whole system here that's developed where through this process of divorcing women left and right, that men were practicing a sort of serial polygamy carrying on taking total wives because they didn't want to do the Exodus 21 thing of having to care for anyone. So they found the loophole of displeasing. It's it's kind of a confusing word. And so it allowed them to kind of marry and remarry and have as many sexual partners and wives as they wanted, you know, and just kind of work their way through until they find like, you know, the one that they finally want, or they could just keep going on. This This is legitimately what's going on in the time and history of Jesus's day and age. And the Pharisees want to know, where's Jesus stand on this stuff? And so... In a sense, in a moment, we're going to get to what Jesus says, but it's just worth pointing out. Have we come a long way? Absolutely so, right? But at the same time, I would argue that we have kept Rabbi Hillel's view. We have just elevated the position of women to being equal with men on this, which I don't think is necessarily the best case scenario. What I mean by this is we've moved from the patriarchal that, that the meaning of marriage is the happiness of the husband. And we have moved within the egalitarian to now marriage is still just about happiness. We just now say it's the happiness of the man and the woman. And so the question is, is that actually what Jesus is coming to do? To simply make marriage be not just for men, but a thing of happiness for men and women? I don't think so as we continue to read. Look with me in Mark chapter 10 and verse 5 as Jesus continues and he gives his answer for the question. Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. So the question of divorce comes up and and they're asking what's allowed? What does Moses command? And, And Jesus says, Moses and God through him didn't actually command divorce. He permitted it. He allowed it as a concession for what he calls hardness of heart or repeated unrepentant marriage covenant breaking and canceling sin. So divorce is not something to be celebrated, to go out and you get to, you know, have your way with whatever. Divorce is the last case scenario when a, when a spouse re- continues within hardness of heart. Unrepentant, unchanging, repeated marriage covenant canceling sort of sins. And so it's a concession that, that was given within the law to protect spouses from suffering endlessly whether that's in a case of a neglecting or abusive husband in Exodus 21 or an adulterous wife in Deuteronomy 24. It's, it's hoping to keep those, those individuals who found themselves with a hard-hearted spouse that they don't have to suffer endlessly within that marriage. And so divorce is never commanded or celebrated. It's God's heartbroken permission to legally acknowledge a spouse's breaking of the marriage promise and their refusal to change, to repent, 
hardness of heart. And so it seems for Jesus, the only thing a marriage can't survive is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart to God and unaging to change, to receive. Hardness to the spouse, hardness of heart to the community. It seems like this is the one thing that will, that Jesus sees as breaking down the marriage vow. But in the reverse, it seems as though if we were to turn Jesus' saying upside down, if there is repentance, if there is humility, if there is a soft heart on both sides within a marriage, there is nothing that a marriage can't see its way through. There's an entire teaching here, whether you're married or not, on the dangers of hard-heartedness. But to bring it back to divorce, biblical divorce then is not, I'm done and I'm out. I just can't put up, I can't. Biblically, in Jesus's view, divorce is, I have tried time and again to reconcile with you. I've tried to make this work. I have given my whole self and, and, and you will not, you're hard-hearted. And so if the divorce is not a commandment, but a concession. What then is God's divine ideal for? What is his commandment for marriage? What is his divine ideal? Jesus continues in Mark chapter uh, 10, verse six. What does he say? But from the beginning of creation. So you guys don't realize divorce is not an okay part of the divine ideal. It's a concession for hard-hearted people. But the divine ideal, the commandment from the beginning of creation, he says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but now one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. For Jesus, our questions about marriage can be answered by returning to the beginning of creation. For him, quoting from pages one and two of the Bible, Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 24, they're in those quotations. And if we just slow down and don't just read over Jesus, yeah, he's talking about Genesis, we find a handful of elements of what Jesus defines as from the beginning marriage. So let's just look at this. We find first and foremost that marriage is a two become one bond, a two become one bond. That is in here, you have the two are no longer, but now one flesh and flesh meaning far, far more than bodies. It's, it's not the best translation, but it, but it is a, a, a good one. Is that it's, it's more, not just flesh, but the two become quite literally, one, there's a bond that happens, a oneness that goes beyond just sexuality. Similarly, we find within Jesus's teachings that if from the beginning marriage is not just a two become one, but particularly the two being male and female becoming one. We find this explicitly where he says, the man shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife, one man and one woman, but even implicit in the pattern that's set up of a father and mother who then have kids and then those kids separate and then from another father and mother separate and then they make a new, a new marriage thing. So it's both explicit and implicit here that marriage is a male-female bond. We find that marriage is an exclusive bond, one in which both spouses leave from their families and communities. And then they, in a sense, communities, we'll come back to that, but they leave and then, you know, hold fast to, they cleave to one another. This, it's an exclusive bond. You know, looking against polygamy or polyamory, it's one of saying only me and only you in this one flesh bond here. Similarly, we find in here that it's a permanent bond in let not man separate. Always you, always me. This is, this, is the, this is what Jesus is getting after the divorce clause. If you guys went back and you reread Genesis, you would see that, that what God has joined together from the beginning of two becoming one flesh, man ought not separate. That the story of marriage is not, you know, one man that joins himself to one woman and one woman. God's ideal is the two become one. Why? Because it's a 
permanent bond as we find here. And we find that, it's an exa- that marriage is an exhaustive bond. bond. An exhaustive, not as in exhausting, but though marriage is exhausting, but marriage is exhausting because marriage is exhaustive. It requires all of you to give all of yourself to the one another. And then finally, all of these come together as we find in Jesus's perspective that marriage is a God-sealed bond. A God-sealed bond being more than just a contract, but a a covenant, a deep thing that, that sets together the unbreaking commitment to responsibility over my rights. This is what it, comes down to in Jesus' view. And so in these two little quotations that Jesus gives here from the back beginning of the story, Jesus lays out for us his perspective on what marriage is so that the Pharisees may be challenged by having a source to consider then what it is not. By you going back and reading Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus says, you will have the answer to your question about divorce or any other questions that you may have about marriage or gender or sexuality. And so this is why in common conversations as we're you know, just making our way through human history, that there's conversations around what is marriage? Who is marriage for? About polyamory or polygamy, about gender, about sexuality, about all of these things, about what marriage is. And, and people will, in the midst of those conversations, say, well, Jesus never explicitly speaks to X, Y, or Z and these sorts of issues. And and for me, in reading Mark 10 and then also seeing Matthew 19 as its parallel is is this feels intellectually dishonest to say that Jesus never speaks to these issues. By Jesus saying Genesis 1 and 2 is the portrait of God's ideal for marriage, if you meditate and think on that long enough, you'll be able to know and, and think through for yourself what is the right or wrong application of marriage, sexuality, and gender. And specifically what he's getting at is for my my kingdom and my disciples. There's a whole conversation about where we go in the midst of this, into our conversation with those that don't identify as Christian, within politics and how that all works out. But for right now, we're focusing on Jesus and his, his community that, that he's birthing, his disciples, his people. And so the question then moves us to, okay, if this is Jesus's position on what marriage is, is if it's exhaustive and exclusive and permanent, if it's male and female, two become one, God sealed, what is the why behind the what? Looking back, into his second quote from Genesis 2.24, Jesus says, there you'll see, that he opens with, therefore, a father, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother. And so this therefore can be translated for this reason is a word of purpose of what the marriage is, therefore. And the therefore comes right after Genesis 1.27 of humanity being made male and female. If we had like a dry erase board right now, I'd just be, you know, highlighting and, and pointing back things too one another to to make this more apparent. And so for Jesus, marriage is somehow connected to how God made humanity and how he made them male and female. And though Jesus only quotes the end of chapter one, verse 27 of Genesis, he assumes these Bible nerd Pharisees have the whole thing memorized and they're uploading all of that as they're engaging with Jesus. But to help us, the context of what Jesus is quoting for in 127 is this, 126. Then God said, let us make mankind, uh, or, or man as it can be translated by some, but it's, it's humanity. Let us make humanity in our image. So God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created humanity. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So here, Jesus pulling from 127 in the surrounding passage of 126 through 28, Jesus sees marriage as one, 
notice this, one aspect of the larger status and role given to humans as the image of God, as a royal uh, partner and presentation of reflecting him into the world. Notice that I say one aspect, that it is not the conclusive way that humans reflect God into the world. We're gonna come back to this in a moment. It's one aspect. But how is this one aspect of from the beginning marriage as Jesus sees it, an, an aspect of bearing God's image? Well, let's go through this, right back through what we just looked at. The two become one reflects God's own community of identity, uh, unity identity. You know, the, the, the way that we'll put this is, is the Trinity. The, the, the God who is creating this world is, is a three-in-one God, that he is a community of unity. And we find that there even in Genesis 1.26, where therefore God singular says, let us make mankind in our image. So God is simultaneously single, but also an us. Do you see that? And so somehow when, when the two become one, they are reflecting God's own nature as being a community of unity, or what we call later on the Trinity. Similarly, the male-female bond within marriage reflects the complementary genders of the image of God. That, that God has given his image, his reflecting power and goodness to both genders. And so both genders are a necessity for the marriage covenant if it's going to reflect that because both carry out and bring differing aspects of the image of God within one another. Now that happens at a level where every single human being has that, but there seems to be within Jesus' perspective, some pretty binary distinctions between how women tend to uh, uh, bring out their image bearing and how men do not just at a biological level, but also in a, in a how we are, our chemistry, our, our brain, how, how we work and how we think. There's an ontological argument that's being made here is, is, is the, uh, the fancy word. Similarly, we just go through the marriage covenant stuff of what we just read about a moment ago and how it reflects God. The exclusivity of marriage reflects God's own dedication to us. And similarly, how he calls for our full dedication to him. The permanence of marriage reflects God's faithfulness to his people, no matter what, and vice versa, are called to faithfulness to him. The, ox, the, uh, the exhaustivity, the, the everythingness of what marriage calls for us to give all of ourselves to one another reflects God's own giving of him, his whole self for us, as seen most pointedly in Jesus's cross. And similarly, how that is what we are called to give God, all of ourselves. Do you see that marriage is meant to be this little portrait and portrayal of who God is and how he works in the world as these two are bound up in this God-sealed covenant marriage, reflecting God's own covenant love out into the world as Malachi 2 connects it. And so in a sense, when couples are, are together, you know, and they're being married on their wedding day and they vow to one another, do you promise to love and comfort and honor and keep him or her for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, be faithful only to him or her for long as you both shall live. They reflect in human the very commitment and covenant of God. Having both of the representations of God's image through these engendered humans coming together, promising, I will never leave you or forsake you. In doing so, there's this whole connection to the image of God and, and what it means to be human that come together here. And so in God's ideal then, when all of these come together from the beginning, marriage then creates a seventh element of marriage. We went through those first six and that, that is marriage is an overflowing bond which we see there at the end of verse 28 in Genesis 1, that the be fruitful and multiply. 
that is out of the full bonding of one man and one woman in God's ideal, it then overflows into more humans, more little image bearers. And this, this isn't necessarily, you know, biology class one and one, but it, both genders are required and necessitated in order to be fruitful and multiply within the one flesh bond. And that's what happens. And so how this connects and reflects is that God's own community, that unity, the Trinity, overflowing with love within the Trinity does not stay within the Trinity throughout eternity, but overflows into creation and time and humanity and, and cr- creation. And so what this brings us to is that within Jesus's from the beginning marriage, the purpose of sexuality is actually that procreation is central. Now, this doesn't mean that it's the only aspect of sexuality. We can go to the Song of Songs, the book of Proverbs to show that it's more, but it is never less. And so for those who are unable to have children, this is not saying that they're like, that's a half marriage or something like that, or less than a marriage. But the absence of the seventh doesn't cancel the other six. And in fact, that in those cases, as hard as it is, we're seeing the brokenness of this world within the bounds within this marriage, within them being able to conceive. And what that, even in the moment, that exception then proves the rule. Why it's so hard for them is because biologically it should be working within God's created order. Similarly, the same is true in the midst of adoption and surrogacy or or donors. These other ways of kind of, you know, being fruitful and multiplying is that even in the midst of those, it doesn't cancel out because of the fact that we have other avenues for the being fruitful and multiplying. The fact that in the midst of those, those are working within some realm of the biological way that God has developed things to work. And there are ways around, that doesn't mean they're always wrong, but but they don't cancel out the from the beginning design and portrait of what marriage is meant to be. And so the purpose of marriage then, as we read through all this and reflect on all of this, is not about happiness. It's not about even love, but the purpose of marriage is at its basis, a covenant which reflects the covenant love of God out into the world for others and what he's like. And so at this point, regardless of whatever you think, whatever questions you have, or even anger that you may feel at the midst of hearing some of these things, those are all valid feelings, I think. But in the midst of that, I just want to invite us, all of us, just to consider, okay, Jesus's perspective here. Jesus seems to be right on a lot of things as we engage with him. And so maybe Maybe I, just, I, I need to lean in. Maybe, maybe he, might, he might be onto something that I'm not. And that doesn't mean that you gotta accept everything right now and sign on the dotted line, but to see that Jesus may be onto something here, or at least it seems like his logic is consistent. And so Jesus, with the Pharisees coming and asking about divorce, and they have all these questions, Jesus says, look, if you don't have any questions about marriage, about sexuality, just go back and read pages one and two to these Pharisees, specifically, he's being so curt with them, I believe, because for them, they're utilizing their little loopholes within the Bible to advance injustice through this kind of serial polygamy practice, which is leaving women abused and used and tossed to the side. And so that's why Jesus goes, you guys are missing pages one and two of the Bible. That's why he asked, have you even read, have you read your Bibles? You guys are the Bible nerds and you're getting all cooped up over how to translate this one Hebrew word in Deuteronomy. If you read pages one and two, you would know God's divine ideal. And that would help you to even interpret what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. So here we go. This is Jesus's perspective. So Mark 10, 10, the Pharisees go away. You know, they're going to go read their Bibles again, or in in reality, they start plotting Jesus' death. And so Jesus in Mark 10, 10 goes back to the house with the disciples and they ask Jesus again about the matter of divorce. And Jesus said to them, 
whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, the disciples come to Jesus. They're having dinner. And he says, hey, great. We love the way that you kind of swatted the Pharisees. Everybody was rooting for you. But um, you didn't answer their question. You just kind of talked about God's divine ideal. So, you know, what about divorce Jesus? Like, what's the situation here? And he gives them this really strong, whoever divorces his wife to marry another commits adultery against her. Now, a couple things to point out, we're doing okay on time, is the first is that Jesus says that the man commits adultery against his wife. This is a historical new anomaly that happens. Throughout history, adultery, if I, I mean, if, if someone <laughs> slept with, with someone else who was married or an unmarried uh, girl who was still living with her father, that was normally, that was the, one of the two places that you were part of your family's house or you were uh, married, is the man didn't commit adultery against his wife. The man committed adultery against the other woman's husband or against her father. And so Jesus turns this whole thing on its head in this one moment, this is so, this little like against her, and we just like read all over it. It's for the disciples, it's, he is placing the woman in this position of equality and partnership within the marriage and that she has just as much say over how he practices his sexuality and who he does his sexuality with and how that all plays out as he does over her. So in a sense, like we talked about a moment ago, we're coming into this egalitarian view of men and women as partners together in marriage. That is true. But what's interesting is Jesus moves forward on this because what it seems like he says here is that all remarriage is adultery, right? Whoever marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. Now, there are some that read it this way and they go, see right there, bada boom, bada bing, that's it. If you get divorced, you get remarried, you're you know, committing adultery. So let's slow down. Let's do some good Bible work here, okay? Let's remember the context of what is the context of the conversation they're having. It's not divorce in general. What is it about? Deuteronomy 24, Rabbi Hillel, the practice of divorcing for any and every cause and then remarrying that process happening. Jesus is saying, and even in the Greek, you, you can see it this way, that anyone who divorces to be married to another. So anybody who divorces and then immediately goes out and remarries another, i.e. that was the person they wanted to be with and that's why they left their spouse. That person is not going through biblical, some understanding of divorce. They're just practicing poly polygamy, like serial polygamy, where I'm moving from one spouse to another. And so divorcing to be married to another is just you manipulating scripture to kind of get what you want. It's the same thing we saw with power uh, last week. It's the same hermeneutic, it's the same way of reading scripture. So Jesus here is actually denouncing Rabbi Hillel's view, which is again, why Matthew pairs Jesus with Rabbi Shammai in Matthew 19, verse nine, where in the parallel to what we just read, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, and then right there, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So you see here, either Mark and Matthew didn't hear the same thing, or Mark is assuming a background that Matthew's helping us get to because Mark was written far earlier for a much earlier audience. Matthew understood that he was writing for a new context that didn't necessarily have all the dots that we do. See, this is why I love the Bible. It's not some vacuum document. There's history to it, like, like gritty history that rewards you for reading it slowly. So what we find here in Matthew and Mark is Jesus is forbidding divorce for his disciples. He's saying no to the Rabbi Hillel view. He's saying in some sense, yes to the Rabbi Shammai, his way of viewing it. The displeasing matter, Deuteronomy 24, what everybody's arguing about, that's, that's about sexual indecency. It's about sexual immorality. It's about a woman or a husband 
who has broken the one flesh union by going in one fleshing with someone else. And in doing so, then divorce is no longer you leaving them, but you simply acknowledging, I'm not going to be bound to someone who's already severed what was there. The difference between Jesus and Shammai is that Shammai required divorce in that case. Jesus simply allows it and calls for every single individual who has suffered that sort of betrayal to pray for themselves, to see if the spouse is repentant and willing to change and able to, or if they're hard-hearted and they're going the other way. So Jesus is not even, he's not Hillel and he's not Shammai. Now, some of us will stop here and do that divorce is only allowed on the permissions of uh, sexual uh, uh, infidelity or adultery. But what about Exodus 21? You guys are getting like a lecture on divorce today. What about Exodus 21? So does Jesus not agree with Exodus 21? Uh, The allowance for divorce with a neglecting or abusive spouse? No. Because again, what's the context of the conversation? Deuteronomy 24, the displeasing matter of indecency. So Exodus 21 is in his mind, but it's an, it, for him, it's an assumption. With the, the issue of the conversation at the dinner table is Deuteronomy 24. And so Jesus seems to uphold it. And then we find this is consistent because Paul himself then pulls from Exodus 21 and applies it within the context of a spouse that abandons their spouse. So there's a, there's a, in the church, there's one spouse that just abandons, takes off and leaves town, neglecting their spouse. And so Paul looks back to Exodus 21 and says, that's still binding for Christians today as an allowance for divorce of a husband who is a spouse who neglects or abuses their spouse. So what we find here then is the Christian allowance for divorce is an acknowledgement that the other has already ended and ended this thing. They've already broken the covenant ties, either through one of two things, hard-hearted sexual immorality or hard-hearted abuse or neglect, withholding, whatever language we want to use there. Those two things are, are seem to be the only bounds for divorce that are given. A hardness of heart in both of those that in some way is separating the two become one exclusive, permanent, exhaustive bond. If I'm Sexual infidelity, adultery, what is that? It's severing the two become one. It's severing the exclusive commitments. It's severing the permanence. And it's, it's, it's severing the, the exhaustiveness of the commitment of the marriage. Similarly, neglect or abuse is that I actually don't view you as one flesh with me. I treat you as someone separate than me or even lower than me. So I neglect you or I abuse you because I... Do you see that Jesus here, he just sees those two things as the examples of something that would sever the covenant commitment. And even then Jesus doesn't command it. He doesn't celebrate it. He allows each spouse to prayerfully consider in front of themselves. And even within the community of the church, which we're going to get to in a moment to prayerfully consider, how do I move forward? And so what we find here is most of the reasons for divorce are not biblically justified to apply this to contemporary culture. Jesus rejects by what he's just said here, divorce over incompatibility, over irreconcilable differences, over financial problems, like over trauma, over mental illness, over falling out of love. Likewise, Jesus would not, would not recognize conscious or happy uncouplings like Gwyneth Paltrow from, you know, over in Santa Monica at Goop. Jesus doesn't see these things. Jesus, divorce for Christians and within Jesus's worldview is a sorrowful acceptance of the hardness of heart of one's spouse. But once marriage is construed within the page one and two Genesis ideal for God, even if divorce is permissible, it's evident and clear. It's antithetical to God's divine ideal for people. 
For those of you that have suffered through a divorce, you can, you've felt this, you know this at some level. Even under the guise of the conscious uncoupling, you know what it feels like to have one flesh be torn open. I've done counseling with multiple couples before and I've seen this. So the question then moves to what about remarriage then? Because Jesus does hit on it. What it seems is that as you read through the scriptures, for those divorced or separated outside of those two reasons, Jesus's impetus would be on them to fight for that first marriage if the, uh, to the point that the other spouse is willing. If they're not hard-hearted, if this is, we can give this, if we can fight for this, I'm gonna keep knocking on that door. But if you're already remarried or they're all remarried, then it seems that, the, that Jesus's call would be to acknowledge, even lament over the brokenness of that to become one while then trusting and receiving Jesus's grace and forgiveness and then moving forward within the marriage you find yourself in. But alongside that, it is no irony to me after being married for eight years that right alongside Jesus's teaching on marriage and divorce in Mark's gospel, we get all of his talk about being a servant. <laughs> and in Matthew's gospel, right alongside marriage and divorce, is the limits of forgiveness. And Jesus says, you got to forgive 70 times, seven times. And so for those who have fought for reconciliation, you know, they've done the 70 times, seven times. You know, maybe they didn't do the math. And they've sought to be a servant. They've fought for this, this the two become one that feels like it's tethering as another person is pulling away. And they fought for it, but they just, the hardness of heart, they couldn't. Then, it, then there seems to be within the scriptures an open allowance for remarriage at that point. With a caveat, the Apostle Paul puts that those persons should prayerfully consider the possibility of singleness if it's for them. And so here we stop with Mark's gospel and we come to the question then of what about me? Not me, but some of you who are watching who are not married. Maybe you've been divorced and now you're considering or you're, you're single for, for whatever reason. What about me? If a singled, unmarried, or my desire, my, my orientation, how I feel and who I am, it, feel, it, it doesn't vibe with what Jesus has just laid out, his little divine idea. What about me? Now, again, if we remember that Mark is the earliest gospel, he doesn't have this little following teaching that Matthew includes specifically for those that don't fit or feel like they do with that divine ideal. Matthew 19, verses 10 through 11. The disciples hearing Jesus' high view of marriage says, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. How's that for the uh, American dream? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are those eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So the disciples get scandalized by Jesus' teaching on marriage. I mean, Jesus, if this thing is like to become one, male, female, exclusive, permanent, exhaustive, forever and always, no matter what covenant, where I've got to forgive and forgive and forgive and push myself to the limits and then some to fight for this thing and all the way to the point where they might even separate to still fight for it until it's proven beyond that they just, if that's what this is, they say, Jesus, no way. It's better not to be married at all. We'll come back to that. <laughs> but what Jesus moves into here is he then says, you know what? Yeah, yeah you're kind of right. Not everybody can receive that marriage vision. But on the other side of it, there are those who have been made, he, he starts talking about these eunuchs. And so what's going on here? A eunuch was an ancient practice, still practiced in some places today even, where kings back in a polygamous culture would have many wives. Their staff who would attend to all of their, their harem, their wives, their property, 
as they were seen, uh, were men, were male slaves. And so to ensure that the male servants don't sleep with the king's wives, many of the, all of them uh, were, were castrated. It's a very common practice. Historic, like this, this, is, this is eunuch. This is what a eunuch is. Someone who has been castrated, specific, like, and so what does that mean? In light of what we just talked about, marriage, divorce, sexuality, procreation, Jesus uses this eunuch language as a commonplace language for people who do not have sex, who do not get married, and, and because of those things, will not reproduce, at least biologically. And he says, he, Jesus holds this ability to talk about these eunuchs, people like this, who will not get married, will not have sex, and will not reproduce. And he says, you know, there's been some who, who, enter, who go through life this way because of what other people have done to them. He says, there are some who have been this way through birth. The way that they've been born into this world is one where marriage, and sex, reproduction, all the, it's just, it doesn't seem to be in the category for them. And, and none of this is a, a negative view to Jesus. I hope you see that, in the te- that Jesus is not laying this out as a negative or as a side thing. The same Jesus who just a moment ago broke humanity into male and female, this high vision of from the beginning marriage is also the Jesus that goes, you know what? There are some for whom those categories are not so clean and neat. And in Jesus' mind, marriage here is not the only way to exist within the kingdom of God, not the only way to Genesis 1 and 2 image God into the world. That yes, marriage is a high important thing that we hold on to because it's, it's an aspect of it, but it's not the sole way that humans do it. That Jesus' mind, there are two equal ways, two gifts as the apostle Paul calls them, to image God, to, to behave and exact and, and live within the kingdom of heaven while here on earth. These two ways of, of marriage and the way of what we could just call the eunuch for right now. Now, what's so profound right here is that Jesus, once again, just like he did with adultery uh, committed against a wife a moment ago, Jesus here is the historical first, once again, to elevate the role of the the unmarried, of, of single life, to be an honorable, normal, significant, meaningful, plausible, and possible way of flourishing and living. Jesus is the first. He's the first on the scene historically. And early Christianity following Jesus was the first to elevate people not getting married as living not just kind of sideline lives, but exemplary lives within the community. It's a historical fact. So much so that this was such a profound moment and thing within the church that for the first 1,500 years, the actually preferred way of engaging and being a part of the church was actually singleness, was actually celibacy. That was the ideal. And for those who couldn't do that, they couldn't make, they didn't have the chops. Then marriage was seen as the sideline. But for most people, that was the vision that was set before them. That, those were the spiritual heroes, were those who were single and those who were unmarried. And so how does this all hold up? How is this even possible? All of this is, is built on and only plausible and possible through the shocking claims that Jesus and then the early church made about itself, about the church as a family. Because, I mean, simply, you just read through the New Testament and what you find is all of those really powerful things that we saw about marriage a moment ago, those aspects and elements of it are continuing within the church. And actually, well, we'll just keep going. I mean, just, just consider this. We looked at marriage. Now here, look at the church. The church is what? It's a many become one family. So not two become one, many become one. It's actually more expansive than the church. And they become not just one family, but one body, literally the body of Christ. The church is a male and female family, one that elevates and represents both 
cares for and, and, and honors both, that one is not showing up to kind of run around for the other. Similarly, the church is an exclusive family in that there is a priority of care and attention and concern and love for one another within this family. The church is a permanent family, similar to marriage, but that call to those within the church that always me, always you. And this is absolutely non-existent in a city like Los Angeles today where we just, we pick up and move and that's, there's no shame in like the midst of a coronavirus, all that kind of stuff going on. But there's something that we're missing here on the permanence of the church family that is utterly, we, that we just move on. Similarly, the church is an exhaustive family. Why is being a part of a local church in the ways that it requires exhausting? Because it requires all of you and it requires all of me to give to one another. Even our bodies, like that's what's the crazy thing is that the church has just, just like the, the wife and husband had say over one another's sexuality and what they did with that. The early church practiced that for one another where they had a say on one another's bodies and what they were doing and who they were sleeping with and how they were practicing their sexuality, both for married couples and for single people. And then even more, it continues, the church, just like marriage, and even more so than that, is a God-made, God-sealed family. God-made and God-sealed, how? Through his, his cross. Why? Through the Holy Spirit. And so actually, Jesus didn't die. That's what's so profound to me. Jesus didn't die for marriage. Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit just for me. He sent it for his church. And so actually what we're dealing with here now is in the giving of the church is actually this family system that actually comes with a larger, more important, greater grasp and need and focus than marriage. Within this landscape, we need new language for those who follow Jesus, who are following the eunuch way because single doesn't work. They're a part of the family community. Unmarried doesn't work because they're not defined by what they are not, but be a part of who they are. And then I, I missed the seventh in this, not just a God-made, God-sealed family, but that like in marriage with procreation, there is a new sort of procreation that happens within a church, overflowing with love that is Jesus' commission in Matthew 28, a sort of new, be fruitful and multiply, go and make disciples. And so the church has these two gifts of marriage and singleness. But the thing is, is that singleness and mar marriage is simply this kind of subset within the larger vision that everybody should be a part of. And so within that subset, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, though there is still Jew or Gentile in the way that they actually live. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer married or single, but all are one in Christ. And so the purpose of the church, just like we did a moment ago with the purpose of marriage, is not a commodity or a club or a consumer basis thing that we go through, but rather it is a covenant-bound community which reflects God's image and covenant faithfulness into the world. The marriage family then, in a sense, is a reflection of God like we talked about, but even more than that, simply just a reflection of the church. This is why for early Christians, marriage was seen in some sense as subordinate to the church family, where couples' identity first and foremost, was not just husband and wife, but brother and sister. This is what led many Romans to accuse Christians of incest is because they couldn't put those things together. Where they understood themselves as brother and sister, they're not biologically brother and sister, but a part of this community where they called one another that, and then they have kids. So the problem is, is that we have done nothing with the church and holding it up to what its vision was. And we've done everything to raise the, church, the marriage up into something that it was never supposed to be. The early church, led by the disciples that are here with Jesus now, they got this, and we, however, have not. The church has spent the past decades, 
The American church spent all their time fighting over the sanctity of marriage and imposing purity culture in youth groups. And they missed the ball, the biblical movement by not fighting for, celebrating, supporting, and developing a theology and practice for the sanctity of singleness and for the sanctity of the church, of that family. And so all of this together seems to say what we need in this moment is not to continue within our stupid idolatry of marriage and, and reshape that so everybody can fit in, but rather we need to pull marriage to where it rightfully is while still holding it for what it is and lift the church and the family community up for what it was always meant to be. It's a sermon on marriage that's turned into a sermon about the church because we live in a context that has idolized marriage and it has set to church into a commodity. And it, marriage makes sense within this context, only then. So where do we go from here as we're at minute 55? Here's the rub. In our culture, in our culture, to hear Jesus say that marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, and it's forever, and 70 times seven forgiveness, there's no way out of it, and to similarly say that you don't need to have sex to have a meaningful life or to be married to be happy, I might as well start talking about aliens or QAnon stuff. It's just, what in the world is this? We are children of Western culture. We have grown up in a visually sexually stimulated culture. And so don't tell me that doesn't have an impact on our brains we have separated sex from the act of procreation. We've turned it into a commodity of something that I do that feels good, either by myself or with a consenting adult. Don't tell me that is not shaped the way that we view reality. In our age, we see sex as the meaning of life, as an act of transcendence. It is the closest thing to spirituality and religion. You listen to songs like Take Me to Church. What is that all? We, are, we have replaced the church with sex. Like that is what we live in. And so we hold the sex to something that can never fit. Yeah, we're going. Marriage, similarly with that path, then marriage has now become the path of love and happiness within the American dream. In our culture then, if marriage is happiness and marriage is life and sex is happiness, then in our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, it makes sense to redefine marriage, to have liberty within that so that people can have the life and happiness that they want because we have missed the mark on the meaning and purpose behind marriage and within sexuality. What should scandalize us is that the church has bought into this vision, hook, line, and sinker. We've baptized the American dream of two and a half kids as the way to fulfillment. We've baptized the meaning of marriage about being about happiness or in Hillel's view about pleasure. All of this has left not only marriages that are crippled because they, don't, they can't function and live well underneath that weight, but similarly, it's led to single people being isolated and left out because the paradigm of being married and having kids is the way to flourishing. So we create churches where unmarried folks are ostracized and gay folks even more so. And so in reaction to this, we have a whole generation that's now reworking marriage and sexuality because of the fact that the church had such a crappy perspective on it. At minute 57, Ryan's getting wiry. And so the task before us is not, let's rework marriage. Let's, let's have a conversation about it. Let's, you know, go towards Rabbi Hillel's vision of, you know, what's pleasure and happiness. And so we want to make that available to open everyone. I don't think that's the way forward. I think what Jesus is calling out of us is rather the way forward is to recapture his vision, not only for marriage, but also for his church. 
to celebrate and support these two ways of the kingdom, the two gifts of marriage and singleness. Because in Jesus's way, it is not marital bliss for the sexual majority and celibacy for others, but that both are called in those two ways to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow Jesus in similar yet complementary ways, relying on one another within the community to bring out differing gifts within the church. And so I'll just say, if your marriage doesn't feel like taking up your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus, if you either in reading over Jesus's words there about what marriage is, is exhaustive, that it's permanent, that it's exclusive, that it's one flip. If that doesn't cause you to feel tension, to bring out emotions, to realize how you fail to live up to it. If marriage and the way that you're following it, or at least your vision for what it should be, doesn't cause other people to look at it and say, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry it seems we're missing Jesus' vision. And similarly, at the same time, if your singleness doesn't feel like taking up your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus and your faithfulness and obedience to Jesus doesn't cause others to ask why, to which your only answer that would make any sense is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and not for my own pleasure or the lack of commitment or the ease of being able to sleep through the night and not having to... This is, this is a hard road that Jesus calls both of us to. And so Jesus is not holding out this easy way for straight folks that they get to get married and have like the easy marital bliss of the American dream and everybody else, it's like, sorry, prayers and thoughts. Jesus sets before us these two ways of discipleship of taking up your cross, denying yourself and following me. The church needs, in the same way it needs both genders, it also needs both of these representations because they're going to bring out and produce differing aspects of what leads to a healthy community. And Jesus understands the weight of this, which is why he closes in saying, not everyone will receive this saying, but let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Jesus says, there are some who in light of my teaching, my high view of marriage, my views on divorce, my dedicated view of singleness are going to turn away. And he gets it, Jesus gets it's a big ask. He doesn't think this is the easy road. But the kingdom of God in his mind is what's at stake within his churches, within each individual's decision. And so when Jesus is understood rightly in what we've just read today, his vision is not marital bliss for straight folks and single gay, everyone else kind of, you know, here's your, you know, here's your way. Understood rightly, both are taking up your cross, denying yourself and following Jesus. Both ought to be both the hardest thing that you've ever done and yet one that provides so much joy and life. And we need to develop churches that quit idolizing marriage as the only place that stuff can be found but churches that are, that are uniting with one another where, where, where those that aren't married are, are not ostracized, but find themselves as a vital part of this family community. And so both come with different gifts, different challenges, different joys. And when we have a church that's functioning as the family it should be, these are not just plausible ways, but it's the context for flourishing discipleship. Neither, if done in the way of Jesus, are easy. And so here as we close, Last two weeks, we looked at the world's way of money and wealth, of power. The past few weeks, we've been looking at this. And Jesus includes within that marriage as saying that the world provides an easy way of selfishness, of, of prioritizing your own pleasure, whether it's your money or you grasping over political power or in marriage. And he's saying to all of us, regardless of where we are, regardless of rich or poor, of married or unmarried, of power or powerless, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him.
And this only makes sense and is only worthwhile in light of the fact that Jesus has taken up his cross, that he denied himself so that he might save and shape us. And so let's pray.